0: This podcast was recorded on Thursday, May 2nd at 6.41 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time.
1: I want to be really clear on this. I don't regret it for a single moment, but seven years is a long time.
0: Gerald Butts, Trudeau's Principal Secretary, has stepped down over allegations he or someone in the office tried to pressure former Attorney General Jody Wilson-Raybould to intervene in the criminal case. Gerald Butts' resignation as Principal Secretary to the Prime Minister earlier this year shook political Ottawa to its core. It's very difficult to, to, uh, to overstate how important this is. This is not just some guy. It's a pretty big deal. Uh, Basically, Justin
1: Trudeau has never been in public life without being associated with Gerald Butts.
0: Butts and Trudeau have been friends since they were undergrads at McGill University. Butts was at Trudeau's side after Pierre Elliott Trudeau died, helping craft the eulogy that would spark the first speculation of a political dynasty. Years later, when the younger Trudeau decided maybe he did want to become Prime Minister, it was Gerald Butts that he called. And it was Butts who brought in Katie Telford on a team that lifted Trudeau in his leadership bid and propelled his Liberals from third place to a majority government in 2015.
1: What he's accomplished tonight has never been accomplished before.
0: On election night, Butts said his friend had won that campaign because he kept his eye on the ball.
1: He's done it because he stayed focused on the things that really matter to
0: Canadians. But four years later, the Liberals have been seriously knocked off kilter after one interesting cabinet shuffle. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is denying that he demoted Jody Wilson-Raybould. She was shuffled today from justice to Veterans Affairs. For reasons that no one can quite explain, she was removed, obviously, angrily, against her will. Less than a month later, this... Claims tonight, the Prime Minister's office tried to interfere in a multi-million dollar bribery case against an engineering giant. The story dominated the headlines. Uh,
1: The allegations in the Globe story this morning are false. Uh, Neither the current nor the previous Attorney General uh, was ever directed by me or by anyone in my office uh, to uh, take a a decision uh, in this matter.
0: Then, Jody Wilson-Raybould, the star candidate Butts himself had worked to recruit, quit. A week later, it was Butz's turn to leave. In his resignation letter, Butts wrote, The Prime Minister of Canada's office is much larger and more
1: important than any of its staff. Butts, though, denied he did anything wrong.
0: Any accusation that I or the staff put pressure on the Attorney General is simply not true. I'm Althea Raj, and this is Follow Up, a HuffPost Canada politics podcast. Today on the show, Gerald Butts. Aside from his two-hour testimony in March, Butts has remained silent. Today he sits down for a conversation on the essence de la bonne affaire, the past seven years at Trudeau's side, his stamp on public policy, and what the future holds for him and the Liberals. That's next.
1: As ready as I'll ever be. Hi, my name is Gerald
0: Butts. Thank you very much for doing this.
1: It's good to be here.
0: I want to start off by asking you why you want to do this.
1: Um, that's a good question, first of all, because you asked me. Um, and uh, uh, I think that um, I think it's an important part of the position that I used to hold that um, you make yourself accessible in some way to the public. Uh, and I think that having an extended conversation about the last seven years and my role in it is an important part of the public record.
0: What is it exactly that, um, Gerald Butts has been doing as principal secretary to the prime minister?
1: Um, well, as you know, it's a, it's a multifaceted job and, um, the most important aspect of it is to advise the Prime Minister on uh, core matters of uh, the government's agenda um, and to help him implement uh, the mandate he was given from the Canadian people. Um, I think it's uh, there's obviously a, um, a management aspect of it, but the most important aspect of the job was to help uh, him and his senior staff and cabinet Uh, keep their eye on the big picture.
0: Did you like your job?
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I I mean, it's one of the best jobs in Canada. I love my job.
0: So why did you quit?
1: Well, um, I think I covered that in some uh, great and to some people excruciating detail in uh, my submission to the Justice Committee. Um, But just to recap, uh, I think I was um, accused of something by a senior member of cabinet that I did not do. Um, But in order to um, defend myself against those accusations, I felt it was important for me to leave the office and do that.
0: I'm going to tread over some of the same territory that you spoke to in great detail on March 6th. I want to start off months ago, more than a year ago, in fact. Um, What, to the extent that you can tell me, were the discussions about a DPA? Because frankly, um, it seems off-brand for the Trudeau Liberals to even uh, contemplate uh, a deferred prosecution agreement. What 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 was behind the the reason to insert that into the budget?
1: Um, well, let me say a couple of things about <coughs> excuse me about the uh, the whole matter. One is, and this is a really important thing, and I said it repeatedly uh, in response to questions, and also in my opening statement to the Justice Committee in the first place. I really believe in the public institutions of this country. I did not and would not participate in a kind of planted story war about what was really going on, and uh, um, I haven't since I left the office, and I won't. Um, I think it's, as you know, Althea, the, um, there's an ethics commissioner process going on looking into this. And I respect that, and I respect him, and I respect the office. And um, I will assure you and everyone listening, if and when I am asked to submit any additional information of that process, I will be an enthusiastic participant in it. But I do not think it is fair for me to say in public um, uh, what I, to transmit that information in public without first having spoken to the ethics commissioner about it.
0: And this would be a question that the Ethics Commissioner has asked you about?
1: That is up to the Ethics Commissioner what the purview of their um, uh, process looking into this whole affair is.
0: I understand that there are some things that you may not want to tell me because it's...
1: If you want to talk about the policy rationale behind the DPA, I'm happy to talk about that, if that's your question. I mean, as I said, I think in response to a question from... Uh, Ms. May uh, on this topic at my Justice Committee presentation. I think it was Liz who asked me this question. Um, I had my extreme misgivings about the policy uh, at the time. Um, I think I was convinced that it was an appropriate tool for the Government of Canada to have in its toolbox by um, uh, a brief I read by Transparency International. Uh, I think there are a lot of misconceptions about what deferred prosecution agreements involve. Uh, They are not, as I said, uh, to committee a get-out-of-jail-free card. Um, They are court-supervised, mandated reform of a company's governance and its business practices. And at no time during the process, um, uh, sorry, at all points during the process, the prosecution that instigated it can be restarted um, if the company fails to comply with any court order whatsoever.
0: So the question you don't want me to ask you is whether you contemplated a DPA with SNC La in mind?
1: Uh, you can ask me any question you want. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I can tell you that um, whenever a matter of public policy comes before the prime minister's desk or the cabinet table, you have to look at every possible angle that you can think of. And um, from my perspective, my exclusive uh, deliberation on this before I gave advice to the prime minister was about whether or not it was an appropriate tool to have uh, at the government's disposal. It had nothing to do with SNC-Lavalin.
0: Did you ever discuss the DPA with SNC-Lavalin? I did not, know. Criminal case in mind? No. Jody Wilson-Raybould didn't say this, but she suggested that she was very uncomfortable with the DPA. Did you know that?
1: Uh, as I said to committee, the first time I became aware of uh, the former attorney general's discomfort with any of this was when, um, uh, after the cabinet shuffle.
0: You say that you never felt that she um, had communicated clearly to you that her that she made a decision on this issue.
1: I think what I said, and again, <laughs> all of this stuff is on a matter of public record, uh, I think what I said to the justice committee was. It was my understanding of the law, based on uh, the professional public services advice, that she could revisit that decision at any point in the process, up to um, uh, up to the point a verdict was rendered in the case. So it was a bit of a it was kind of a, a red herring in the public debate that surrounded the aftermath of the cabinet shuffle, that a final decision could, in fact, be made when it was my sense, and uh, again, I said this before committee, but it was my sense that at any point in the process, the decision could be revisited, and therefore, it was open until there was a, a verdict rendered in the criminal case.
0: But no one communicated to you, which is what she says, she did on September 17th, that she had made a decision?
1: Well, I wasn't present for the meeting on September 17th, as I said, um, but the only brief conversation I ever had with a former attorney general was in uh, the Chateau Laurier Hotel when she raised it with me at the end of a very long dinner about many other important public policy issues. And at no time was I told or asked to do anything Um, speak to staff or she asked me to take no action whatsoever
0: So what you knew about how she felt about the issue was communicated to you either through Elder Marquez or Matthew Bouchard
1: I'm not sure I understand your question
0: You've both said that I had
1: no reason to believe as I said to committee that um, the former attorney general thought anything untoward was happening.
0: OK, but my question is, did you think that she had made a decision on this issue?
1: I didn't think it was possible to make a decision on this issue, or at least a final decision, uh, until a verdict was rendered rendered in the criminal case.
0: So with the one thing that I have trouble with, because i I've obviously listened to you, I've listened to her, I've probably read everything <laughs> that's been written on this topic, I can actually see a situation where you are both right, but there are flags to me that I have trouble squaring. I don't understand how it's appropriate for PMO to talk about informally approaching the director of public prosecution or how PMO even knows what's happening in the director of prosecution's office. How does PMO know that there's one prosecutor that's in favor of a DPA, but the director is not in favor of a DPA?
1: Um, I really don't have anything to say about that, because I don't really have any awareness of it. Um, My uh, perspective on the whole issue was that there were welcome and um, productive conversations happening between. the people who were running the file and the minister's office and the minister herself, and uh, I was never given any indication that anybody believed anything other than the normal operation of government was happening until after the cabinet shuffle.
0: So when she says that this was happening, you were not aware of it? No, absolutely not. The December 5th meeting at the Chateau Laurier. She says that you both sought out this meeting. You testified that she had requested the meeting.
1: That is correct. And I believe I submitted evidence that she requested the meeting.
0: Yes, through your text messages. Correct. She said that her message to you that day was... I wanted to speak was... about a
1: number of things, including up bringing up SNC and the barrage of people
0: hounding me and my staff. Did she say this to you?
1: Not to my recollection, no. And I would also say that if that were the express purpose of requesting the meeting, you would think it would come up before the end of the dinner.
0: She said, these are her words, that you told her that you needed." she needed to find a, quote, solution to the SNC stuff. Did she say that to you?
1: That is not how... Um, That is not my recollection of the conversation. Again, as I said at committee, um, this was basically a perfunctory matter raised with me at the end of a long conversation about very important issues, um, which we discussed in detail and at length.
0: The crux of her testimony was that she had been the victim of sustained efforts, and she named you and Katie Telford among the individuals that were... um, responsible for that sustained was effort. sustained efforts at communications, not only with myself, but with my office, um, from various members of the prime minister's office, including Mathieu Bouchard and Elder Marquez, both of whom are policy advisors and legal advisors, to the prime minister, as well as to um, Jerry Butts and Katie Telford. Then on April 4th, so a month and change later, she told McLean's in an interview, sorry, that was published on April 4th, that, quote, Jerry didn't make me feel pressured, but I wanted him to know that this was happening and that it had to stop.
1: Look, as I said at committee, I am not looking to have, I'm not looking to say a single negative word about anybody, including the former attorney general um, or uh, anybody that I spent seven years of my life uh, working very hard on really important matters of public policy with, I think that um, uh, I think that the I think that those two things are hard to reconcile. On the one hand, depicting my role in this matter as uh, a key fulcrum moment in a um, months long effort to put pressure on the attorney general, and then on the other hand, to say that she never felt pressure for me. I think that is a very difficult thing to reconcile.
0: Have you spoken to her since she quit no. Cabinet? No. Why not?
1: Um, well, I haven't had occasion to, um, but... Sounds like the, you were
0: texting buddies. <laughs>
1: uh, the last conversation I had with Ms. Wilson-Raybould was the day the uh, Global Mail story broke and I called her. Um, I was in Toronto with the Prime Minister. Uh, I called her and uh, because we had been asked a very direct question by the Globe about that dinner uh, that I had with her on the 5th or the 6th or whenever it was. Um, And I said to her what my recollection of the dinner was and I told her that that is what We would be communicating to the Globe Mail.
0: What was her response?
1: Um, You know, she can uh, she can speak for herself on that matter.
0: The Prime Minister spoke about a breakdown of trust between you and Jody Wilson-Raybould. What
1: has become clear through the various testimonies is that over the past months there was an erosion of trust between my office and specifically my former principal secretary and the former Minister of Justice and Attorney General. I was not aware of that erosion of trust as Prime Minister and leader of the federal ministry. I should have been.
0: Is that how you would describe what happened?
1: Yeah, I think that is a fair description of what happened.
0: Can you explain that for me? Because I I don't follow how that breakdown happened.
1: Um... Well, how it happened, I'm not sure. I think that I thought uh, at the time that we were working um, together toward a common set of objectives, and I don't think in retrospect that we were.
0: How were you not working together?
1: I was not aware, um, and uh, I was not aware that the SNC-Lavalin matter was such a major factor in um, her thinking about her colleagues.
0: You had recommended, I read this in the Globe, that you it Must be true. Well, we'll see. You tell me. Um, that you had recommended that she be shuffled out of justice in August. Um,
1: Those are really highly confidential discussions. I'm not going to speculate about what may or may not have been said in the context of a discussion about a cabinet shuffle.
0: OK, let me ask you about the January cabinet shuffle. Sure. Do you regret the advice you gave the prime minister? No. Why not?
1: Because I think it was the right advice. I think that it was important given the whole, as I said, the committee, I think it was important given the whole that, uh, Minister Bryson's departure left in cabinet that, um, the person with the most treasury board experience was put in treasury board and that, a person who would send a signal to the indigenous community of how important the file was to the prime minister and to the government was put in that portfolio. And that was the rationale behind my advice, and I still think it was good advice.
0: But even with hindsight being what it is?
1: Look, I mean, you do, you, you make decisions in real time, and uh, you don't have the benefit of hindsight in jobs like the one I used to hold. Um, I think there was no way to predict what happened.
0: When did you first um, realize that um, maybe moving Jody Wilson-Raybould to another portfolio would not be the best idea?
1: Well, as I said, I I think that um, I don't think it was a bad idea.
0: did Ms. Philpott um, ever suggest to you that there could be a solution found to uh, this problem if um, any particular action was taken?
1: What do you mean? It sounds like you're trying to ask me something very direct there.
0: Um, I believe it was Matthew Bouchard's head uh, that that would be enough to placate Ms. Wilson-Raybould. Is that true?
1: You're asking me if that conversation happened?
0: Yes. Um,
1: Well, look, um, I'll say what I said before again. I really believe strongly in our public institutions in this country, and I'll be completely transparent with you. I absolutely know the answer to that question. I also know that there is... um, one of our fine public institutions, the ethics commissioner, is looking into the whole array of issues associated with this matter. Um, And if anybody, you know, if the ethics commissioner wants to ask me that question, I will answer it to him and his office, but I feel it would be very inappropriate to me, for me, to answer that question before... That um, process has concluded.
0: Some caucus members feel that Ms. Wilson Raybould's recording of the telephone conversation with the clerk of the Privy Council uh, is um, is a way of trying to entrap him into uh, a certain scenario.
1: I'm not, look. I'm really not going to imply motives or uh, I think that I would agree broadly with the, not broadly, I would agree specifically with what the prime minister said about that um, event when it became revealed that I think it's unconscionable that a minister of the crown would secretly record a private conversation with a senior public servant.
0: Did she try to negotiate with the PMO to stay in the justice portfolio?
1: No, not while I was there. No.
0: So then how can it be entrapment?
1: Um, I did not say it was. First and foremost, I think that I think that if we were having this conversation, you and I, Althea Raj and Gerald Butts having this conversation privately and one of us was recording it.
0: I am recording it. I know.
1: (laughs) Well, but here's the point. I am aware that you are recording Mm -hmm. it. I think it would be hard to take at face value. It kind of flies in the face of common wisdom to take at face value. The thing said by the party that knows it's being recorded.
0: Do you trust her?
1: I don't think that matters.
0: Did she ask for your head?
1: I think that that is probably going to be something that the ethics commissioner looks into. So I'm not going to uh, say one way or another. I think it was. It's fair to say that I had every reason to believe that um, the attorney general, uh, former attorney general at the time, um, put a great degree of responsibility for what she believed had happened on my shoulders, and I felt. That as a matter of principle, it was important to accept that responsibility, um, in a sense. But that it was equally important for me personally that I had an opportunity to uh, tell people what I believed happened, and I think I thought that was going to be impossible to do from my job at PMO. And as I said uh, again to committee, I was not going to put the prime minister in a position where our relationship. Uh, as friends of three decades could be held against him. I still, as I said to committee, I still believe that nothing happened here other than the normal operations of government.
0: Then why would she quit?
1: You'll have to ask her that question when she comes on your podcast. You
0: you must know. She said that she lost uh, faith in the prime minister in those apparently four days.
1: I can't answer that question.
0: I want to move on, but I think I need to ask you this question directly. Did you think the prime minister wanted a DPA for a sensitive AI?
1: No, no, I, um, uh, no, I didn't, I didn't think he did or didn't want one. I think that again, as I said, the committee, I think that our, his and our main objective was to make sure that every possible due diligence had been done that um, there was nothing wrong with, in any way, shape, or form, with asking for uh, an opinion on a new law from an eminent jurist.
0: What was the fallout of your testimony like?
1: Uh, A lot of people, I was overwhelmed by the amount of support that people reached out with. Um, I think the period between my resignation and the testimony were probably the most difficult uh, on my family.
0: What do you mean by it was difficult on your family? I suspect they would have been happy to have you home.
1: (laughs) Well, you know my family. Um, Well, I will tell you one story. So... The first night after I resigned, I had a couple of friends come over, um, just kind of to be around for moral support and bring food and that kind of thing. Uh, and they had two young boys, an eight-year-old and a five-year-old, and are nine and six maybe now. And unbeknownst to either of us, there was, uh, you know, the <laughs> there was quite the bank of media cameras in my driveway. And they, my son, who's 12, uh, was a bit of a Kind of big brother to those kids, and when they came in, when they left the car, they were of course. It looked like the Oscars coming up my driveway. There was uh, flash bulbs going off, and the kids were quite alarmed. And um, they came in the house, and my kids were quite upset by the whole thing, and uh, understandably, their kids, right? And I explained to them, uh, Jody, my wife, and I explained to them that evening that while this is all new to them, we've seen this a 1,000 times, and this will last for a few days, and then uh, everybody's going to forget who we were, and we can get back to having a normal life. And I said to my kids uh, on the bright side, I'm going to get to walk you to school every day, and in what universe did you think that would happen? Um, So they were quite pleased by that. And then the next morning when we woke up and we were getting ready for school, um, it was one of those days in Ottawa where people who live in Ottawa understand them or will recognize this very well. It was like spacesuit weather. It was so cold, right? So we bundled ourselves up in our parkas and uh, um, uh, my son's school is about a kilometer from my house and my daughter's school is around the corner. So we walk out the door that morning and with my son and um, I get to the end of my driveway and I turn left up the street and I catch out of the corner of my eye, there's a blue car parked illegally across the street and as soon as they see, the person in the car sees me and my son walking up the street, they jump out of the car and they jump in front of us on the sidewalk. And he kind of crouches down and starts taking pictures of us as we're walking to school. And, um, you know, it's... (sighs) I said to him, and fully expecting, you know, I thought uh, this would be... um, rebel media or, uh, at the very worst, the Ottawa Sun. uh, I asked him, I said, look, I know you're just doing your job, um, but do you mind telling me who you work for? And he said that he works for the Globe and Mail. And I was quite surprised by that because, um, you know, you depend on, uh, in jobs like the ones that I held, you depend on certain publications to, uh, abide by, I wouldn't call it a code of conduct, but there's a bit of an unwritten set of rules and how you interact. And I felt that that was a pretty clear breach that had, um, negative ramifications for my kids. And, um, it was also the week that uh, the yellow vest protesters were in Ottawa. Um, and you know, it's, you don't want to be in a position in any line of work you're doing where you feel like you're jeopardizing, uh, in any way, even if there's a 2% chance in any way, the safety of your family. And, um, I think that, uh, one of the one of the great, you know, I've been very lucky in my life, and I've been very lucky in the positions I've held and the people I've worked with, and uh, I think we can all agree. Uh, and you can assign blame however you want to do this as either a journalist or a citizen, but I think we can all agree that the the um, the tone of politics has taken a decidedly different turn for Canada uh, in the past year or so. And I think this was behind uh, the Clerk of the Privy Council's testimony to the Justice Committee initially. I think, um, you know, I think that there are, I've seen all over the world public institutions falter and fail in places that we never would have expected it to happen in the first place. And at the core of it all, I think, Um, or at least what plays a material um, role in what has happened is I think the economic model of journalism has changed dramatically, if not collapsed. And I think that people are willing to go to print or to put on air things that 20 years ago they would not have. And the combination of things that happened to my family that week after I resigned uh, definitely played a role in my um, uh, thinking about how to engage with politics in the future.
0: There's a lot there.
1: A lot happened.
0: Do you think your safety was ever in, at risk?
1: I think it was. Um, it would have been I don't know. I'm not a security expert. I'm not someone who assesses these things for a living, and I don't have that kind of expertise. Um, But if you're asking me, was my family quite worried, and were my kids scared, and did I think it was um, the Marcus of Queensbury rules to put my house on television um, and to let everybody in Canada know where I lived at that moment in time? No, I don't think that was right at all.
0: PMO now and the federal government now, what do you look back and feel that, you know, you had a hand in making this happen?
1: Well, I mean, look, I think the most important thing about politics is it's a uh, team sport, right? And I would not claim individual credit for any individual measure. Uh, But, you know, at the end of the day, they're not bought at the end of the day, there are 850,000 Canadians today who are not living in poverty, who were three years ago. And that is a function of a policy uh, created and implemented by the current government.
0: Is that what you're most proud of?
1: Yeah, I think, I think it is, actually. Because I think, um, I think it's going to be really hard for people to change that no matter what happens in the next or any election after that. I think one of the—I actually had this conversation with Dalton McGinty recently. Um, He asked me a very similar question to the one you asked me, and uh, I think the the proudest day that I've had in politics was, ironically, last year during the Ontario provincial election, when it was revealed that the then— Leader of the Conservative Party and, uh, well, still leader of the Progressive Conservative Party and now Premier, had been recorded um, promising prominent developers in the Greater Toronto Area that he would open up the Greenbelt for development. And once it became revealed that that promise had been made, he had to uh, walk it back by supper time that day. And I think that that is, you know, you, you, you try and stay focused on the things that are going to be enduring. And usually things are enduring because they're the right things to do. And um, that may not become apparent when you're in the process of doing them because they have they involve big changes, taking 2 million acres of, uh, of farmland and uh, sensitive ecological land out of uh making sure they couldn't be developed in the greater Toronto area in the period between 2003 and 2005 was a really big thing, right? And uh, it was very contentious. But I think it's also going to be very difficult to change. I feel the same way about the coal retirement strategy in uh, Ontario. Since the 2003 election, when the team proposed it as one of its really significant, four or five significant policy um, uh, commitments, There have been like four provincial elections. And of the three parties, that means there have been 12 platforms. And I don't think anybody has ever promised to reopen a coal plant in Ontario. In fact, you now have the government of the day uh, endorsing it so strongly that they argue that Ontario doesn't need to do anything else about climate change.
0: Our politics at the moment seems more focused on wedged issues than anything else. Frankly, climate being one of them.
1: Well, I mean, I think that I think that there are very few major political parties in the world who have taken the perspective on climate change that the Canadian Conservative Party has taken. And I think that history will judge them very poorly for it. So many people think of climate as a political issue. It's not really a political issue. It's an issue of physics and chemistry. And um, the the world is doing its best to adjust to a new climate and a new reality, and I am an optimist, and I think that those adjustments will be made. The issue for us as Canadians, from a political perspective, is what kind of role are we going to play in that, and what kind of um, you know what kind of changes are we willing to make? I think that any time a big change like this happens. Um, historically, you're going to have a lot of entrenched interests who want to make sure the status quo prevails because they profit from it. And I think you're seeing a lot of this in uh, uh, the current debate in Canada. Um, but it's really, really important that we keep an eye on where the future is going. And and you know, the optimistic thing is that from an energy perspective, from a food production perspective, from... All of, the, all of the big sectors of the economy that are um, going to need to change in order to uh, reflect a new reality in the climate, those things are happening. The question we have to ask ourselves as Canadians is do we want to be part of that or not?
0: Why did you even want to get involved in politics?
1: I believe very strongly in the country. I believe in active citizenship. I think that um, it's all worth it in the end. I mean, it is all worth it. And
0: you still feel that way?
1: Absolutely, I feel that way. I think I feel more strongly about it now than I ever have.
0: That sounds like you're still actually like you want to still remain involved in politics.
1: Um, Look, I think that that will take very different forms. throughout the course of my life I think that uh, it is safe to say that um, you know look uh, it's no secret that I have a lot of friends who are still very actively involved whom I care about very deeply uh, and I care about my country very deeply and I think that what is happening and how we're experiencing it in Canada uh, we're at a really important moment I think that uh, in particular on the issues that I care most about, like climate change, um, we're at a turning point. And it's important for people who care about those issues to get involved and try and make uh, positive change happen. Um, but I also am... You know, I'm also in a at a point in my life where I've basically given half of my professional life to um, uh, politics and government. and you know y- you have to you have to evaluate uh, what that means in terms of the risks you're willing to take on for your family and uh, uh, for yourself. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, I mean Jeremy Broadhurst is uh, A good friend of mine that i've worked with for many many years and if he or any other member of the team needs any advice on any matter whatsoever they know where to find me
0: that's the liberals new campaign director Yep. so does that mean you will not be taking an active role in the campaign
1: i look i i'm not sure what you mean by an active role i think that um uh, i am willing to give people advice uh freely and unfettered um but uh i'm not sure what you mean by that question
0: you won't be drafting campaign strategy we will not see you um like we saw you in 2015 uh, looking over ads narrative helping the prime minister with debate I, prep
1: look i the as yogi berra uh, said famously the problem with the future is it hasn't happened yet um so i think that part of uh, your job and you and your colleagues do it very well, is to ask a bunch of hypothetical questions to get people to rule things in or out that you can then say later, "Aha! He said he wouldn't do X, and now he's doing X."
0: So you're not reeling anything in, but you're am, not reeling anything in.
1: Yeah, I mean, what I what I will say very clearly is, it is my uh, my intention to uh, move on in life to a career in the private sector, um, and that. I feel very strongly about the current government and its agenda um, and the people within it. And I will always be there to give them advice. But professionally, it's uh, uh, time for me to, you know, uh, do other things.
0: If the Liberals lose the election, will you feel personal responsibility?
1: Again, it, this is a team sport. It is not on any one person's shoulders. and i I think um, you're asking me another hypothetical question because I think course. I think the uh, Liberals are going to win the next election.
0: What's your relationship like with the prime minister now? It's good.
1: It's good. I mean we we were friends a lot longer, excuse me, a very long time before he was in public life, and we'll pro' we'll, I'm sure we'll be friends a lot longer. Uh, then he will be in public life. Um, That's good. That's good. We're good friends.
0: When was the last time you spoke?
1: Uh, I think we spoke last week. Uh, Mostly he was calling to wish me a good hiking trip with Jody.
0: The Mail in April, I think it was the Easter long weekend, published a piece about um, the dynamics in the Prime Minister's office. Right. They basically suggested the Prime Minister is checked out and doesn't know what's really going on and that there's two people running the show, um, you and Katie Telford, the Chief of Staff. They described uh, Ms. Telford as more details-oriented, more organized and less emotional of the two. And you were described as more instinctive and more inclined towards the big picture narrative. Do you agree with um, the Globe's characterization of what is going on in the prime minister's office and who the two of you are? Three of you, I guess.
1: Yeah, uh, no, I don't. I, I, I think that, you know, one of the most surreal things about being involved in politics at that level is to read depictions of yourself and... While I was in the job, I did my best to ignore them. And and frankly, I was on a hiking trip with my wife when that story came out, so I didn't really pay that much attention to it. But lots of people have asked me about it, so I looked at the characterization. And I think the prime minister is a very hands-on prime minister. And um, he has been intimately involved in the details of policy development, of uh, communications, of the cabinet agenda of foreign policy. Um, And I think that any, I forgot about the political staffers involved, but any public servant who you asked over, um, uh, you know, a cup of coffee would tell you the same thing. As far as the characterization of myself and Katie, I think, you know, it's been a bit of a parlor game in Ottawa for years to try and figure out who does what and how we do it. I think that, Or did it? I think it's the truth is, and it's as the truth often is, it's a lot more boring than the story people try to tell periodically. Was that we made all consequential decisions about what advice to provide the prime minister together, whether that was a strategic question or an operational question. Um, And having been involved in, and certainly a close observer of, Several governments. I look the the complaint that any government is too centralized is a constant complaint. Um, I think that some have argued, and it's almost risible, that our approach was more centralizing than the Harper government's approach, which I think is is you know it's just laughable. Uh, I can honestly say that with the exception of budget speeches, I don't think I ever was in a position to or required or um, asked for ahead of time a minister's speech. Like we, Katie and I did not do that. I mean, we are, we really believed in cabinet government and I, and still do. And I think that cabinet ministers in the Trudeau government have been given a lot of leeway. A lot of leeway. Uh, I think it's axiomatic for governments or any organization that if you want to have a creative, innovative organization, you have to, or if you want to have people who are creative and innovative, you've got to give them room to create and innovate. And I think that um, nobody's perfect and mistakes are always made every day in anything that involves human beings. But I think that, w- that that's the way the government governs.
0: How would you describe Ms. Telford and how would you describe yourself?
1: I I think that's up to other people. No,
0: oh, no, it's not. You. you just told me it's not, so I'm asking you to play the parlor game.
1: Well, the benefit of um, my role in all of this is I don't have to play the parlor game. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the best the the best piece of advice I ever got in my life actually was about this topic. Um, my aunt, uh, sister Peggy Butts, who was the Um, spent what she characterized as the least productive three years of her life in the Senate. She was the only um, cleric ever appointed to the Senate, to my knowledge, Uh, way back when I was thinking about getting involved in politics uh, the first time. Um, Well, kind of the first time I would volunteered before then. But Dalton McGinty had offered me a job as his policy director in opposition at Queen's Park. And I asked, of course, as I did with most things in those days, she's since passed, um, so is unavailable for such questions. Um, I called Peggy and asked her for her advice, and she said to me that, and I actually think this is true of life, but she said there are two kinds of people in politics. There are people who wanna be something, and there are people who wanna do something. And the latter are too few and far between, uh, and the former are too numerous. And you should ask yourself the question whether Mr. McGinty is in the latter category or the former. And if he's in the latter, you should help him because those people need support.
0: I'm back with Gerald Butts. You told me a story a long time ago about how you first became involved in Dalton McGinty's office. I thought it was an interesting way for a young person to get involved in politics. Can you tell me that story?
1: Yeah, sure. After the 1999 election, where I I had not been living in Ontario for a very long time at that time, I think I'd moved to Ontario in 1997 or something like that, Um, I read this article where Dalton had said, that he felt that they lost the 1999 election because they were simply the anti-Harris party, that they didn't have a platform of their own, but not in a detailed way at all, and that he wanted to get immediately to work building the platform for the 2003 election. So I had just, as a grad student, I'd worked for uh, Senator McKechn, and I was kind of helping him put his papers together at the time. That was really my first exposure to politics. Um, And... A lot of the period I was looking into was the the run up to the uh, creation of the the election of the Pearson government, where they had gone through a very similar thing, and they uh, Alan MacEachin and Maurice Lamontagne and uh, Tom Kent especially had very and and this was very innovative in Canadian politics at the time. They they went about rebuilding the kind of policy and intellectual backbone of the Liberal Party and. That's where ideas like Medicare and the Canada Pension Plan and even the flag came from. Um, and so I wrote Dalton. I mean, it was very naive. I was probably, what, like 26 years old or something at the time. Um, I wrote Dalton a long letter describing what the Pearson Liberal Party had done in opposition and told him that I thought, you know, in my humble opinion at the time as a 26-year-old, that they needed to do something uh, very similar. and you know, I didn't think anything would ever come of it. Um, but then I was sitting in my office one day uh, and I got this phone call from Dalton McGinty. And he said, I read your letter.
0: The two of you did not know each other. I
1: think we'd met really briefly. His father and my aunt were close friends. Um, I think we met really briefly at some event somewhere. But no, I did not know Dalton McGinty at all, really. Um, but he he called me out of the blue and said, Come into the office and let's talk about this. And and uh, we kind of started working together. Several months after that, you know, I hope that any uh, any young person who is interested in in public policy or politics who hears that, thinks it's always worth it to write that letter. Right? It's always worth it to to volunteer for a campaign and to work on causes you believe in, because you never know who's listening. Um, I think that one of the most underrated public policy achievements of my lifetime, and I had a role in this obviously, um, was the, um, the public school reform in Ontario, under the McGuinty government, that brought it from um, languishing well down, I think it was like ranked 95th in the world or something, in terms of English public school systems, to number one or two within five years. And, you know, that really mattered to a lot of people. There were, I remember thinking on the 2003 campaign, that there was a whole generation of, I won't ask you if you're in this generation, but um, there was a whole generation of Ontario public school kids who never had an extracurricular program. They never had a basketball team, they didn't have a chess club, they didn't have a debating union, they didn't have a computer science club, and it was all because of the needless strife that had been created between the government and the teachers. And. Um, the summer after we were uh, elected, the McGinty government was elected in 2003, we created this non-compulsory, basically volunteer program for teachers to come and learn about the new approach to schools and the curriculum in the summer of 2004. And teachers volunteered by the thousands to come and learn about what um, uh, the government's plans were. and I say that you can only get so far with people when you're trying to get them to do things out of threats and fear. Um, but if you're appealing to shared values and objectives and um, you're asking them, you convince them that you share those objectives and you're asking them to do things that you know they want to do anyway, um, you will get way more out of people in the long run. and. I think at the end of the day, politics is a people business, and uh, people get involved in politics because they basically want to see their country, their community, their province change for the better.
0: Why did you leave Mr. McGinty's office?
1: Um, Well, I mean, when I started in... Mr McGinty's office. I was 27 years old, uh, 28 years old, recently married, uh, no children. And when I left, I had two children under two. Um, and at that point, I thought that was going be my <laughs> that was going to be my contribution to politics. I had no intention of ever getting back involved in politics when I left Alden's office in the middle of June 2008. I I thought that uh, my priorities in life had changed, I guess is the simplest way to put it.
0: Then you went to the World Wildlife Fund.
1: I did, indeed.
0: Um, That's, you were there when I met you? Yeah. How did the prime minister, the liberal MP for Papineau at the time, convince you to get back involved in politics?
1: Well, it was, you know, it was pretty much, uh, seven years ago, um, after the, you know, the, actually, I think it was, I think it was seven years ago today that Harper was elected with a majority as we're recording this. Um, I remember I was at a WWF, uh, it was the 50th anniversary of the World Wildlife Fund and I was in, I was in Switzerland at that celebration and I was not, uh, I was not really paying attention, i got to be honest, to what was happening back home at the time. And I remember getting a voicemail message from uh, Justin saying, you know, basically what had happened in the election. And um, I was quite surprised. I mean, I knew it wasn't going very well when I left, and I was not involved in the federal party at all. But... um You know, I think that I got involved because—I got back involved in politics because I really believed in—and still uh, do—in him and what he was trying to accomplish. And uh, I think that, you know, I think that when you feel like you can make a difference, you should make a difference.
0: So then why don't you stay?
1: Well, like I said, I mean, you know, it's— when I started this, when I got back involved, and it's not like WWF wasn't an incredibly demanding and rewarding job that involved a lot of time away from my family, but um, my son was five, my daughter was three, and uh, now my son will be a teenager in four days, and five days, and uh, my daughter's 11. Um, she won't listen going on 16. <laughs> so it's, you just, your priorities change. And um, truth be told, it was always my intention to leave after the election, probably this time next year. You know, you just, uh, you, have to, you have to really clearly and thoroughly assess what you think are the most important responsibilities in your life. And at this stage in mine. I think it's really important that uh, my kids and my family be shielded from, or not, not shielded is the wrong word, not take on the very obvious risks associated with political life at this moment.
0: A safety risk, to go back to our- No,
1: it's not a personal safety risk. It's more, um, it's broader than that. It is a reputational risk for me personally. It is my wife who had, an incredibly, uh, um, positive, productive career, um, who, you know, basically when you undertake to do something like this, you blow up your lives and you do something completely different from what you were otherwise doing. And again, I want to be really clear on this. I don't regret it for a single moment, but seven years is a long time. And, uh, as I said to Jody on many occasions, uh, my wife Jody, on many occasions uh, over the past three months, my main ambition next in life is to be a an excellent rhythm guitar player in her band. That she gave up an incredibly um, rewarding career, and I don't just mean I don't mean that financially. I mean it more. She was she was basically running a major hospital, um, and would have been. Um, a uh, very, very significant uh, healthcare executive. We, we were always very careful, the whole time I was in uh, my former job, that you cannot have either the appearance, like even the basic, like the, the the most basic appearance of a conflict of interest. So it meant that my wife can do very little other than volunteer work and board work.
0: there files that concern you um as you leave this life
1: yeah uh foreign interference in our elections uh, people should be on guard for that uh, i think that climate change remains a real going concern um i i think that the government is just getting started on its agenda to make the economy fairer and um to make growth work for everybody. I think all of these issues are still issues, notwithstanding the really important successes the government has had. Um, And uh, more work needs to be done on all of them.
0: Do you worry that the Prime Minister won't be able to rebuild his coalition?
1: To rebuild his, I'm sorry?
0: Coalition, you Democrats, some Greens, Uh, progressives who voted for him, some conservatives, switchers?
1: I think that one of the important Lessons to be drawn from the last 25 years or so of Canadian politics is that party affiliation has never been weaker, right? Um, As it often does, Quebec was kind of the vanguard of this when you think about what's happened in Quebec elections. Since I was a student at McGill, they've pretty much chosen every option and when every option available and created a bunch of new options (laughs) in order to uh, uh, make new choices. And I think that that was a key insight that we had in the run-up to the 2015 campaign, that you know, citizens are free citizens, and they do not... When I was growing up in Glace Bay, Nova Scotia, you knew that Maggie down the road was a Tory, and she was always going to vote conservative no matter what, and John up the street was a liberal, and uh, Myrtle across the street was a new Democrat. These are all actual people, by the way. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that world is gone, and it's gone. Uh, Forever and mostly for good because it means that people who are competing for the support of their fellow citizens in an election campaign uh, need to do so based on what the kind of people they are and what their vision is for the future of the country or their province or their community. I think that's a good thing.
0: So does that mean, no, you don't think you'll have difficulty rebuilding that coalition?
1: I think it'll probably be a different coalition. What I'm saying is I think that Identifying that coalition as Greens, New Democrats, uh, Red Conservatives, I think that that's not that's not the way people conceive of themselves as political actors.
0: Because I think a lot of people in 2015 um, saw what they wanted to see in the Prime Minister, and I'm not sure that uh, you can do that again. When
1: I think that's a little cynical, to be honest. I think that um, I think that people in 2015. Um, they really wanted a change from the government of the day, and they did a very strong assessment of who they thought was most capable of delivering that change, and I think they made the right choice, obviously. I don't think it's fair, and I don't think it's very um, charitable to Canadians to say that, and I know the Conservatives are trying to play on this sentiment presently with their ad campaign, but I think that Canadians are smarter than that. I think they knew what they were voting for, and they knew what they were getting.
0: Well, they got a prime minister who went back on his word on electoral reform, who bought a pipeline.
1: I think they got a prime He campaigned on, um, chiefly, the most significant commitments he made were on um, the Canada Child Benefit, the Canada Pension Plan, the climate plan, infrastructure, the infrastructure plan. And he did all of those things. And as Richard Brennan, who is one of my favorite journalists, once said to me many, many years ago in Queen's Park when I asked him, why aren't you guys putting the fact that Ontario's test scores have gone up 8% in the last two years on the front page of the Toronto Star? I remember Badger said to me, when are you liberals going to understand that plain lands is not a story? And I think that is true, that it is, um, it's is—it's part of the dynamic of the way governments are covered, that mistakes get blown out of proportions, uh, proportion and successes do not get covered.
0: What do you think you should run on?
1: I think that's advice I'll give privately if asked.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, clearly you have some ideas.
1: Look, I I think that re-election campaigns are fundamentally different from election campaigns, Um, and they should be. This is something I've said in in quasi-public forums repeatedly over the past six months, uh, and certainly to caucus and to cabinet, that um, a very clear choice needs to be presented, that re-election campaigns should be about a choice, not a referendum. And I think I think the starkest choice is on climate and what kind of economy that people think is going to attract new investment and in jobs and what kind of jobs do people think their kids are going to have.
0: You were in government for three and a half years, give or take. Give or take. Um, The federal government. The federal government. What have you learned about Gerald Butts?
1: Oh, I don't know. (laughs) I think uh, one of the best pieces of advice I got from someone of a different political stripe uh, when this whole thing kind of started to unfold was, you know, no matter what happens, uh, you have to continue, you have to resist seeing yourself through the prism that other people are trying to create for you. And, uh, I think that, um, I have done my best to do that. So I don't, you know, you always, if you're, I like to think that everybody learns new things about themselves every day. I don't think there's anything about this whole experience writ large that has revealed any great truth to myself about me. I try not to think about myself that much. Um, One of my favorite lines from one of my favorite writers is, uh, uh, you'll stop worrying about what other people think of you when you realize how seldom they do. And I think that's a good adage to apply to yourself as well.
0: Have you learned anything about politics?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think that I really, you know, I want to support what uh, the clerk said about this specific. I worry issue. about my country right now. I'm deeply concerned about my country right now, and it's politics and it's and and where it's headed. I worry about foreign interference in the upcoming election, and we're working hard on that. I worry about the rising tide of incitements to violence, when people use terms like treason and traitor in open discourse. Those are the words that lead to assassination. I'm worried that somebody's going to be shot in this country this year during the political campaign. I don't think people appreciate, and there's obviously very little I can say about this, um, given my obligations to my former role. But I think there's very—I I don't think people appreciate how real the um, uh, the dangers are for people in public life right now, and I think that that is a new thing, and it's an unwelcome thing. Um, and it was kind of surprising to me. I can't really elaborate on that, <laughs> I'm afraid.
0: I feel like my question is like, is that you mean privacy or do you mean security?
1: Well, I think both. I think both. I mean, the um, it gets back to the points the discussion we had earlier about journalism. I think that there is um, there are very few lines that people will not cross anymore, and. Uh, I think that when you look at countries where those lines have been crossed repeatedly, it it acts as a great disincentive for people to get involved in public life in the first place. And um, you know, I think social media has changed this a lot. And if I've watched um, very up close and personal, what is Happen the impact that social media has had on public life in other countries. Uh, I think that um, you know, I, I, the only time I've been back in uh, PMO since in uh, 80 Wellington and since I left the building was the clerk asked me to come back for his staff retirement, like the little gathering of PCO people, and um, and uh, he asked me to say a few words, and I said that. That's another adage I try and live by is um, the only real freedom, like the most important freedom you have in life are the things you choose to pay attention to, right? You know, Michael Wernick, who to me, it's kind of the the saddest thing about all this is the way he's been treated, in my view, um, is a consummate public servant. And if you were to look, if there were a Canadian encyclopedia of public service, Michael should be on the cover of it. Um, he was <laughs> he was always in a very kind of almost fatherly way he would um, chide me about uh, how much time I spent on Twitter and <laughs> I told and he was right and uh, I told him I said to the group at uh, at his retirement that um, I don't even have the Twitter app on my new private phone, so he thought that was a personal victory on his way out the door.
0: One thing that I find has changed is that people um, in public life lie. Um, maybe I was naive before, but I feel like they lie more liberally than they... What do you
1: mean? Can you give me an example of that?
0: Um, they state th- things in a way Name, that names. are... Okay, well... Um, I'm going to give you two examples so people don't think I'm partisan. Um, The Conservatives recently had a bunch of um, social media postings that I think misrepresented what the findings of the parliamentary budget officer were um, with regards to uh, your uh, carbon pricing plan, suggesting that people would be paying more, Mm -hmm. um, which is the opposite of what the PBO actually found. and. Uh, frankly I think a lot of people feel that uh, the Prime Minister himself when he came out and responded to the essence of story on February 7th saying that his office had not the story in the global Mail was incorrect um, but that um, no direction had been given Uh, granted I appreciate the fact that no direction had been given but a lot of people feel that the story was accurate because pressure as seems to have been applied um, that that was inaccurate, or perhaps if you want another example, uh, electoral reform.
1: Right. Um, well, I'll have to agree. We'll have to agree to disagree on the second point. I'm sure. Uh, I th- look, on electoral reform, I think the prime minister was pretty transparent with people that he tried and it didn't work out. Um, I I think. Well, it didn't work
0: out because he didn't get the answer he wanted. But okay, let's. Well, you we don't need to debate yeah, that. I'm I just.
1: Didn't. I yeah. I mean, I I think that those are, with respect, I think that those are different orders of magnitude. I really do. I would stand behind 100% what the Prime Minister said on uh, February 7th. Um, I do not believe that pressure was put on the Attorney General to make any decision whatsoever in this matter. Um, I think the first example, and... Of course, people will expect me to say this, but I do believe it's true. I think that there are a whole bunch of people in the Conservative Party who have either written or said to me privately that they do not agree with the approach that their party and its leadership is taking on climate change. Um, I think they daily say things they know are not true and they repeat those things as a fundraising strategy. Uh, I think that is a very different thing than the other two examples you described. I think they are willful, and they are intended to make people believe that something which is not true is indeed true, and I think that is a new thing in Canadian politics.
0: Do you think it's only the Conservatives?
1: I think that um, I hope it goes away as an effective tool uh, to either raise money or elicit support.
0: I hear where you're coming from with regards to your disagreement of my characterization of the premise, you no surprise there, but don't you have a higher threshold to abide by if you're saying we are so different from the other guy that we will not like
1: i don't i think the prime minister told the truth and um i don't
0: well he said there was the story was inaccurate
1: the story was inaccurate
0: well that's the way she feels I, I get it. That, that's not the way you feel. But then it was like, well, it wasn't I, I'm not sure feelings have much to do okay. with this. Well, then it wasn't like inappropriate <laughs> pressure. Those were the words the prime minister himself used in his press conference following your appearance at committee.
1: I think that, um, as I said at committee, that people saw things that happened in the past in a different light because of the cabinet shuffle. And I still believe that to be true. And I'm not saying that to cast aspersions on anyone's character or to imply that anybody did anything untoward. I just think that it stands to reason that if, again, as I said, a committee, if something was wrong in January or February, it was wrong in September, October, November, and December. And at no time, was an effort made to make the leadership of the government aware of that?
0: I feel like we're we've come full circle.
1: I think that Canadians, whenever they go to the polls, um, are fair judges of a bro- of a government on a broad swath of issues, and I think this will this. And its aftermath will obviously play a role in people's determinations in the fall, but I don't think it will be—I don't think it'll be a tipping point. I think it—tipping points the wrong way of putting it. I don't think it will—I don't think it'll be—it'll be the deciding factor in many people's votes. I really don't. I think that um, governments are governments for four or four and a bit years or three and a bit years, and. Canadians are fair people, and they make judgments based on a wide variety of the government's accomplishments and disappointments. And I think that in their capacity as fair judgment judges, they will decide that the prime minister has been a very good prime minister, and the government's been a very good government.
0: The prime minister seems to be rudderless, if I can say that, like...
1: Well, you can say anything <laughs> you want to say. I may not agree with that, and I certainly don't agree you
0: with don't, that. You don't? Because no. the past two months have been, uh, he seems unsteady, unsure. He's misspeaking. I, look, he's... I think you
1: guys want are seeing what you want to see. And I think that there's an easy story to be told that, um, you know, there was this kind of mythology created around Team Trudeau by the press more than by Team Trudeau itself that it required certain components to be present in order to be effective, and I just don't think that's true. I think that... Um, Do you mean you? I think the nature of the relationship, I think the um, the, the the people involved, myself included. Um, I just don't think, honestly, it's a great team of really hardworking, dedicated people, and uh, that is both on the in caucus and in cabinet and the Prime Minister himself. and on the staff side, these are really hardworking good people. and it's a mistake if you're their opponents. It's a mistake to underestimate how effective they can be. Um, but I also think it's a mistake if you're covering them to depict them as dependent upon any one person's presence.
0: I want to ask you about something you posted yesterday on your Facebook page. Okay. You wrote, a supposition, nothing of a high degree of difficulty can be done without a corresponding degree of trust among the people trying to do that thing. Discuss.
1: Yeah, um, I think that's a very interesting question. And funnily enough, and I've almost written off Facebook, Funnily enough, it created this really interesting discussion of people, some of which, some of whom I had not heard from in many, many moons, uh, weighing in on this. And when I say it's a supposition, I mean it literally, I'm like putting that forward. Do people believe it's true or false? I'm not sure. I think there are convincing arguments on both sides.
0: What were you thinking of when you posted that?
1: Uh, I was thinking about what I'm doing next with my life, frankly. And what is that? TBD.
0: <laughs> Gerald Butts, thank you very much.
1: You're welcome. It was a pleasure to be here.
0: Gerald Butts is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's longtime friend and advisor. He served as principal secretary to Trudeau from 2015 until February of this year. Butts was also former Ontario Premier Dalton McGuinty's principal secretary from 2003 to 2008. <laughs> So what did you think? Send us your comments and thoughts about this week's episode. You can reach me through Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Althea Raj, A-L-T-H-I-A-R-A-J is my handle. We always love hearing from you. If you already subscribed to follow-up, thank you. If you haven't yet, well, what are you waiting for? The subscription button is right at your fingertip. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. Every note helps grow our audience. A big, big thank you this week to producer Xian Lum and audio editor Mikhail Stein. Andre Lau is our executive producer. I'm Althea Raj. Until next time.